This episode of the Grown Up Girls Report is brought to you by McAfee, the world's leading cybersecurity company. Now, some of you may know that in my other life, I am McAfee's cyber mum, which means my job is to help families stay on top of the latest developments in the online world. We all know being a digital parent is a really tough gig. It can often feel completely overwhelming trying to stay ahead of the latest apps, games and risks. Well, here's some good news. If you want to ensure your family has Rolls-Royce level protection across all their devices, then listen up because McAfee is giving away 20 12-month subscriptions of its premium protection security software called LiveSafe to listeners of this podcast. Simply be one of the first 20 listeners to message me at my Cybermum AU Facebook page and you can score McAfee's award-winning software worth nearly $150. How good is that? Good luck. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Grown Up Girls Report podcast. My name is Alex Merton McCann. I'm so looking forward to introducing you to today's guest, a really interesting and inspiring man. Yes, you heard it. We have our second bloke on the podcast, and he is a standout. Dr. Andrew Browning is a medical missionary and an obstetrician who has dedicated his entire working career to helping pregnant women and women affected by birth trauma in Africa and Southeast Asia. He is regarded as the world expert in fistula surgery and has overseen the care of 11,000 women. In 2009, together with his aunt Val, he set up the Barbara May Foundation, which has run free hospitals for the poor, it has prevented fistula, and it has also helped train midwives in clinical skills. And together, they have actually helped the safe delivery of 50,000 women. Andrew works really closely with the United Nations, with the World Health Organization, and in short, he's quite a big deal. And I find his story to be so inspiring. There is no doubt that Andrew's work has positively affected the lives of tens of thousands of women, so he needs to be celebrated and we need to hear his story. So of course he has to come on the podcast. So sit back and relax because here is my conversation with the wonderful Dr. Andrew Browning. So Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Alex. It's so great to have you here. Now, just a heads up, listeners, because of the corona pandemic and we're all staying at home, Andrew and I are actually using Zoom. So I'm just apologising in advance if the quality is not usually what it is. And um, in addition to the to the need for Zoom because of I'm staying at home, Andrew's actually self-isolating because he's just returned from Africa. So, uh, yes, so, so Andrew, Andrew, just, just before we, we get into it, so how much longer till your self-isolation comes to an end? Um, not that I'm counting, but it's um, 72 hours. <laughs> 72 hours, I bet you are absolutely counting. What have you done to entertain yourself? Uh, yeah, not a great deal. It's been rather dull. No, but I've been able to do a lot of work, most doing stuff online, administering our projects in our hostels around Africa and Southeast Asia. So there's been a lot of time spent on Zoom yep. um, and on the email, which is the normal part of my day while I'm in Australia anyway. Okay. And we're writing a textbook. Um, yeah, so just finished the, the text for the textbook um, on physical surgery. So it's been put to, put to good use. 
Excellent. Very, very pleased to hear that. Now, look, let me just get back to that incredible CV of yours, which I mentioned in in the bio. And I I just have to say that, look, seriously, on behalf of women worldwide, some of those, those incredible things that you have achieved and your life's commitment have just changed the trajectory for so many women. So thank you for all that you have done and your incredible commitment to making a difference to the lives of so many. I just, you know, Honoured to have you here today, Andrew. So, so thank you so much again. Yeah, thanks, Alex. And look, I was lucky enough to attend um, quite a fabulous fundraising dinner for the Barbara May Foundation last year and um, and obviously became quite privy to, to the work that you do and some of the terminology that you use. So I thought before we get into it, do you think you can explain to listeners about the, the, some of the terminology? For example, fistula. What does a fistula mean? Yeah, so fistula is just a, uh, a word, it purely means hole. And the hole that we're talking about is due to childbirth in women. About 5% of all women everywhere in the world, for whatever reason, the baby's getting stuck in labour. So here in Australia, you have a caesarean section that's diagnosed in labour, caesarean and everything's well on where there's no hospitals, no doctors, no midwives. If you get into obstructive labour, then you stay in labour. And the women I treat have been in labour for three, five, seven, sometimes even 10 days. Wow. So invariably the the baby can't make that long labour, so pretty well always the baby dies. And then she'll deliver a stillborn child, usually unconscious by that stage on the fourth or fifth day of labour. So she delivers her stillborn child and then it takes on average about two days for her to regain consciousness And when she does regain consciousness, she finds that she's leaking uncontrollably from her bladder and also her bowel. Because she's been in labour for so long, the obstructive labour, the baby's head's being pressed against the mother's pelvis, so all the tissues between the birth canal and the bladder and sometimes the birth canal and the, the rectum, all those tissues are crushed, the blood supply is cut off, they die. So they, the, she delivers a stillborn child and then all those dead tissues come away and she's left with a fistula or a hole between the bladder, birth canal, and sometimes the rectum and birth canal as well. So she leaks continually. She's depressed, uh, suicidal. Um, She's rejected by her family. Her husband will divorce her. Uh, She'll just live in isolation for the rest of her life. And 40% of the ladies I treat have have attempted suicide with this condition. So it's pretty devastating and it happens frequently. Um, We estimate that there's still 2 million women around Africa waiting for treatment. So there's still a lot of work to do, um, but we are also trying to prevent it because you prevent it just by enabling women to have access to doctors and hospitals and nurses, midwives during labour when they otherwise wouldn't. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and what a devastating condition, but but I can see that the preventative strategy is, is really where the focus needs to go. So, yes, that makes complete sense. And, Andrew, can I ask, when you were, you know, back in your sort of, you know, early 20s and um, you were working out the direction that you were going to take when you were studying medicine, what was it that drew you to this particular line of work? Um, I always wanted to be a missionary doctor. Um, I... I'm a Christian foremost, and I uh, gave my life to, as a Christian when I was about 14. But going back even earlier, when I was six, going to Sunday school, I was listening to a returned missionary that our church supported. She was a nurse working in Tanzania, and she spoke to our Sunday school class, and I was just, you know, 
and wide-eyed and um, overawed about her stories and thought, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. So as a six-year-old, I kind of made that decision, I suppose, that I'd be a missionary one day um, and just little steps along the way. So as a medical student, I was in the Rwandan refugee camps uh, working there uh, the genocide time and thought this is a, a wonderful, awful, awful things, um, but a wonderful way to, to help uh, relieve suffering in the world um, as a Christian. So step by step along the way, then um, I became a, um, an obstetrician after I actually visited a lady called Catherine Hamlin in Ethiopia because my aunt has been living in Ethiopia for the last 40 years and runs a huge aid organisation to the Afar nomadic people in the desert. But while I was working with her as a junior doctor, I visited Dr. Hamlin um, and she ran a fistula hospital and yes. uh, she offered me a job. So then I had to come back to Australia and get my obstetrics and gynaecology training to, to get the work permit to go over and help her. So then I was with her for 10 years um, and then moved to Tanzania and started fistula work out of Ethiopia with my own organisation. So Catherine, still doing, oh, she's dead now, sorry. She went to, this is why I'm in self-isolation. I attended her funeral last week. About to mention that, and we know that was a very, very sad loss because she was an incredible lady and so inspirational for many. Yeah, and uh, she was 96, so it's not unexpected, but um, yeah, an incredible life that she's led. And the work that she does is still continuing in Ethiopia um, with the staff there. But then I started my own organization in 2011 and to take that work out of Ethiopia to the rest of the world. So we um, moved to Tanzania with my family and I. And uh, started fistula work there, but also I've started fistula work all many places around Africa now and, and Southeast Asia to take that work out of Ethiopia to the rest of the world, where it's um, just as needed, if not more. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Andrew, I was I was shocked to read that the over 800 women a day die worldwide from birth-related injuries and that more of these are in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, I understand that the Barbara May Foundation has actually built three hospitals in Africa. Um, can you tell me a little bit about these projects? Yeah, so, I mean, I was treating obstetric fistula and have been treating obstetric fistula. Actually, my first patient was 1996, so how oh. 24 years now. Um yeah, so you can only do this work for so long before you start thinking of ways to prevent it because it is preventable. Fistula used to be common in Australia and America and Europe back in the 1800s, but we've prevented it by having safe obstetric care for all women when they need it. And we can do the same uh, for the rest of the world. So I started the Barbara May Foundation with my father uh, back in 2009, actually, to build maternity hospitals where there aren't any. So the big problem in Africa is that there's so few hospitals where you can get a delivery. So, for example, I, I lived in northern Ethiopia with my wife and two kids for a while. We started a new fistula hospital there, and myself and two nurses were treating up to 700 fistula patients a year wow. in that hospital. And it was a, in a region of 20 million people, and there was only six hospitals where you could get a cesarean section, and none of them were busy um, because they, all the women lived too far away. So 96% of women were delivering at home, and up to in, actually up to one in 14 women were dying during their lifetime trying to have a baby, not let alone getting fistulas. So um, we had to build maternity hospitals to stop that from happening. 
um, to prevent fist, not only treat fistulas but to prevent them by providing good, safe and free obstetric care. One of the biggest reasons why women don't come to hospital to have their babies is they think it's going to cost money and they don't have any money, so they stay at home and, and suffer the consequences, which could be death, could be a fistula. Um, yeah, which is an awful prospect and something that we've forgotten in the West how dangerous some um, death is. And you talked about the statistic of 800 deaths per day, which is greatly reduced compared to 10 years ago. Um, but it's probably a, a gross underestimate, uh, uh, grossly underestimated. Um, yeah, there's all sorts of politics behind publishing good figures, but people working on the ground realise that that's it's probably far, far more. Women are still dying every day trying to have their baby. We're just starting to build with a, the Lutheran Church in um, America. We're starting to build a new maternity hospital in South Sudan, actually, which has one of the worst maternal mortality rates. And all going well. We hope to have that opened in August. Um, yeah, but we'll see because, I mean, now with the coronavirus, all the charities are getting far less donations coming to them because people were about their jobs. So we'll, the knock-on effect of the coronavirus lockdowns will have far greater ramifications across the world than, than we realise, and it's going to be very hard to manage. So for simply for us to run our units is going to be a, a real struggle over the next time, and, and women and babies will die um, as a result. Yeah, look, I was just I was just about to ask you about about how the how the pandemic is actually affecting your work. But as as you rightly said, that uh, charitable donations are going to be very adversely adversely affected, and the flow on effect will be will be very concerning. But before we um actually started the interview, you also mentioned to me about how when you 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 had to leave Africa and you and you had to turn away some patients. Can you tell us listeners a little bit about that? As devastating as it is. Yeah, so um, I'm meant to be in South Sudan operating on fistula patients now. And uh, last week I was meant to be in Uganda and next week I'm meant to be in Tanzania. So um, in each place, approximately 30 women uh, had come for their fistula operations and we had to turn them around because Uganda, South Sudan have shut their borders so I couldn't get into those countries uh, to teach and operate. And uh, Tanzania, the border is still open, um, but it's looking like it's going to close any minute. So um, I attended Dr. Hamlin's funeral last week and then then came back. So um, uh, it means all those 90 ladies or so had to go back home. And as I said at the beginning of this interview, there about 40% do try to commit suicide with this condition. And now that they've been given the hope of a cure, then being turned around and sent home, I do worry about how many will actually uh, take their lives thinking that their one shot of hope of being cured is gone, uh, which it hasn't. As soon as this is lifted, we'll, we'll go over and we'll, we'll operate on these ladies. But, I mean, they're illiterate girls. They, um, it's hard to communicate concepts to them and the, the worry about travel and the coronavirus and they probably don't understand all the things that's going on in the world and um, so I do worry how many might actually take their lives uh, because these camps were, were cancelled. Of course, of course. And, um, and, and we, before the interview again, we, we were chatting about, you know, what happened during the Ebola um, outbreak and how that also had a, had a similar trajectory. Can you tell me about how that worked? Yeah, so we, um, I partnered with an organisation to help start fistula work in Sierra Leone and it was going well for some years but it had to close down during the Ebola time. Uh, so you might remember a couple of years ago there was an Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone, um, uh, Liberia and Guinea. <clears throat> and so those three countries effectively closed down and within those countries they put 
in lockdown strategies to contain the virus, which did contain the virus and it was um, essential because at that time uh, 50 to 90% of people with Ebola would die. So much greater statistics for death than the coronavirus and much more devastating. Um, and so they really came down hard, rightly so. But um, the knock-on effect of that too is difficult to measure because, because people couldn't move. They couldn't go to hospital when they were in labour because uh, they couldn't move from their village and to get to the hospital. And if they did get to the hospital, the doctors didn't want to treat a pregnant lady because there's lots of blood involved and they were scared that they would get Ebola um, because Ebola is transmitted by blood. And so just from pregnancy, many, many hundreds, thousands of women have died from having a, trying to have a baby during the Ebola time because they couldn't get access to safe obstetrics. And then I was one of the first ones back into Sierra Leone when the travel restrictions lifted and uh, there was many, many hundreds of new fistula patients that occurred during the, uh, that, that period of 18 months when the countries were shut down. So the knock-on effect was great um, and many more people died um, because of the lockdown effects not being able to get to hospital with typhoid or malaria or pregnancy, uh, then actually died from Ebola. So, um, yeah, but you have to shut down something like Ebola because if you didn't and it spread, probably many, many thousands more would have died from Ebola. So it's a difficult balancing act. Absolutely, absolutely. Andrew, I understand that the Barbara May Foundation was established to support your work, your development of, of, of hospitals providing free maternal health care to women in Africa, but also to support the work of your aunt, Val, um, who has got an incredible network of, um, of, of hospitals and, um, and women's health projects happening in Africa, specifically in the Afar region. Do you mind uh, updating us on, on how Val's going and, um, and basically giving us a snapshot of what she's achieved during her time in Africa? Yeah, sure. I was with her at Catherine Hamlin's funeral last week. So it was her son, Catherine Hamlin's son, Richard and Val and I were given the, 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 the points of um, importance in the funeral at the front because uh, we I was actually the only Westerner who could get there, unfortunately, for the funeral because of the travel restrictions and Val obviously lives there and her son was there a few weeks before from England. So it was very sad for the staff but, and it was great to see Val and it was actually her 70th birthday the next day so I was able to celebrate her birthday with her as well, which is lovely. But, um, uh, yeah, Val's... Um, Probably the black sheep of the family is the best way to describe her. I um, mean, she went to Ethiopia as a 21-year-old in 1974 to answer the, um, uh, uh, maybe 24-year-old she was, sorry, um, in 1974 to, to relieve some famine work. And she's pretty well stayed in the Horn of Africa ever since. And in um, the late 80s, she married an Afar tribal elder in the desert. She's been persona non grata of several countries, Djibouti, Ethiopia and Eritrea at various times um, because she's created so much um, difficulty for the leaders by, by exposing some corruptions and, and mass killings and, and so forth uh, to things like amnesty and the BBC, which she's received several peace medals for. Um, so she's had a remarkable life. But in the late 80s, she married a, an Afar tribal elder, a lovely man, Uncle Ishmael. Yeah. And together they started an aid organisation to take development to the Afar tribe. At that time, they didn't even have the writing and language, uh, the, the, the language and writing. So their first job was to put the language in writing. And uh, so they taught people how to uh, read and write. 
and then they realised that there was no books or anything for them to read. So then they had to publish newspapers and books and so forth. And then they, they taught people to be health workers, um, literacy workers. And so, so now she runs a big aid organisation to look after pretty well one and a half million AFARs. She's got 750 employees, all of them AFARs, trained by herself to how to read and write and then how to be health workers or whatever. Um, and each year they treat about half a million people in their clinics. Uh, they uh, teach about 10,000 people how to read and write per year. They publish newspapers and books and periodicals. They have radio stations. They build about 500 kilometres worth of roads every year through the desert. Um, water supplies, drill water holes and water catchment areas for the, the brief times that it does rain. They do cholera emergency work, HIV work, and animal veterinary work. They, they Gosh, pretty well run incredible. the... Yeah, yeah, 32 different projects, um, one of which is maternal health. So that's the one that we do together. And um, so we built our first maternity hospital in the Afar Desert. So over the years, we, um, uh, we've trained traditional birth attendants. And because they were doing, in the villages, the, the only person to look after you when you're pregnant is the traditional birth attendant. And they're illiterate people. Their only um, qualification is that they've had babies themselves and they survived. So everyone else in the village thinks, oh, you must know what to do. You can deliver all the other babies in the village. So off they go and they deliver their babies. But they don't have a scientific background or the education that we have. So a lot of the things, the practices that they do uh, are wrong and actually harmful. So, for example, it's their, their cultural belief, these TBAs, these traditional birth attendants, that the blood in the placenta is bad. So after the baby's born, uh, before the placenta's delivered, they'll cut the umbilical cord longitudinally and try and bleed as much blood as they can out of the mother and out of the baby, thinking that that blood is bad. And that kills people. Um, or, you know, it's 50-degree heat and... Um, it, they don't allow women to drink during labor and so they get completely dehydrated and when it comes time for them to push they're so dehydrated they don't have the reserve to push so um all these these things we had to teach them not to do or val had to teach them not to do i went down and helped with her some on occasion and um then teach them what to do and so that decreased the maternal death rate from 6,000 deaths per 100,000 deliveries uh, to 550. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, and it costs very little. It costs, we equip them with a birthing kit that costs $1.50 each to do EBA. And uh, each, we give them training each year. So we've got um, 800, no, over 1,000 TBAs trained and on the books now. And we give them um, training every year, updates, and it costs $50 each. Uh, to train them and pay them. So that decreased the, that little investment of money has decreased the death rate from 6,000 to 100,000 deliveries to, to 550. Oh. But we had to take it a step further and build a hospital. So they, with the Barbara May Foundation, that was our first maternity hospital to build in the Afar Desert. Uh -huh. yeah. So we opened that in 2011. And um, so it's been operating since then. Pretty tough to build a hospital in 50-degree heat with no water, no <laughs> It dust gets into everything, everything breaks. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a challenge, but it's a challenge worth doing. And it saves countless lives of women and mothers. And I go down there twice a year to treat fistulas. I'm meant to be going down there in May, but uh, I dare say that'll be cancelled as well um, yeah. because of the travel restrictions. Of course. Andrew, is the hospital currently running or is it also had to close down? Yeah, of course. 
No, 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 no. So the the hospitals are, of course, an essential service. We've we've postponed the fistula work because I can't get there, yeah. uh, and there's no surgeon who can do the fistula surgery in that that particular hospital. But in our hospital in Tanzania, there is, um, and the hospitals in Uganda there is, and the there is. But um, pace, uh, but the maternity work is essential, and uh, that's continuing, if not even busier. Uh, but that's going to be dependent on the the um, the funds that we can get. Of course, but the local staff. I mean, the the maternity work goes all year round, and so last year through our networks, we delivered fifteen thousand ladies, um, and so we're hoping for a similar number this year. But of course, depending on funding. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. That's that's incredible statistic. When I was at the dinner last year, Andrew, uh, you shared stories of two ladies who you have treated. And I wonder whether you might be able to share those stories with our listeners. From memory, their names were Ningolo um, and Zahar. And I remember how their lives have been completely transformed as a result of you being able to operate on them. Yeah, thanks, Alistair. There are hundreds, thousands of stories. Um, it's difficult to remember them all. You know, it was yeah, dreadful stories in Nepal just a few weeks ago, um, yeah, Congo during the wars and all Somalia. All sorts of horrible, horrible things that women go through. But yeah, Ngolo um, was one of the last patients I treated in Tanzania before moving back to Australia two years ago. And she was from the far south of Tanzania. And she was married probably at the age of 15 or so. I mean, they never know their age, but she was young. And uh, she soon after became pregnant. And the nearest hospital to her was over 100 kilometres away. So she did what every woman in the village would do, and that was to try and have the, the baby at home because the hospitals just weren't accessible. There's no communication and no transport and no money to get to pay for hospital fees. So she went into labour, but after a day of labour, she still hadn't delivered. So another day passed of two days of labour, and she still hadn't delivered. She was in obstructed labour. And the husband was illiterate and he desperately wanted to try something to help. But he didn't know what to do. But he had the idea that if he boiled a basin of water and put her feet into the boiling water, mm. uh, that would stimulate her uterus to contract. So he did that for two more days. <sighs> and after four days of labour, Ungolo was now unconscious and still hadn't delivered her child. On the fifth day of labour, unconscious, Ngolo delivered a stillborn child. Oh, dear. She was still alive, just, and it took her two days to regain consciousness. But when she did regain consciousness, she found that she was leaking uncontrollably from her bladder and also her bowel. She mm. sustained fistulas to her bladder and to her bowel. Husband quickly realised that her wife, his wife was not getting better and he divorced her and, and left her. She went to live with her mother and the mother didn't want her in the house either, so she made a little mud hut at the edge of the family compound and put Ngolo in there. And so Ngolo was shut in that little mud hut, unable to walk because of burns on her feet and too ashamed to socialise, so she stayed in there isolated for 18 months. She was found by a mission and taken to that hospital 100 kilometres away and they tried to operate on her fistula three times um, but their doctor there was poorly trained and he didn't know how to cure her and she wasn't cured. 
So she was actually by then found by our outreach worker from northern Tanzania and brought to us. And I operated on her um, at the end of 2017, just before we moved back to Australia. And we give a spinal anaesthetic, so they're awake during the operation. And Angolo had so given up hope that she could be cured that she just sobbed uncontrollably throughout the whole operation. No, Andrew. <laughs> Poor darling. Yeah, so it was a difficult operation. There was a lot of reconstructive surgery that needed to be done because the whole birth canal was destroyed. We had to make a new one, urethra. And so um, they have a, a tube in their bladder for two weeks after the operation while all the, the tissues heal. At the end of the two weeks, we removed the catheter and uh, fortunately she was cured. She was completely dry, continent of bowel and, um, and bladder. That's a urine and feces. She was absolutely overjoyed. She was jumping up and down, clapping her hands, had a smile from ear to ear and saying, look, I'm going to go home. I'm never going to meet another man. I'm not going to be married again. I'm going to um, yeah, go to school and start a new life. So in the middle of last year, I got word down to her village and heard from Angolo that she's going to school and um, she's still well, still happy. And uh, so she's starting a new life, which we're, we're very thankful Absolutely wonderful story. You've given her life back. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the addictive part about fistula surgery. It's what you can't turn it back on because it's one of the few operations that you can do that completely transforms someone's life um, from being outcast to someone who can be part of normal society again and even get pregnant and have a, have a, a baby and start a family. We ask them all to come back to us um, when they are pregnant to have a cesarean because uh, yeah. if they get into obstructed labour, they'll, they'll likely die from a ruptured uterus or something. So they all come. Well, we urge them to come back and many of them do come back to, to have their baby with us for their, their next delivery. Yeah, very good. And Zahar? Yeah, Zahara. Uh, Zahara, sorry. Yeah, she's from the Afar Desert of Ethiopia and I treated her uh, last year. Um, I know, 2018, sorry. <clears throat> she was a, a little girl, little nomad girl in the desert, also got pregnant and, and had a delivery in the bush in the desert um, with a TBA, one of the traditional birth attendants looking after her, not one of the ones that we had trained, unfortunately. So she had a TBA deliver her child. Everything went well. She had a, a live baby boy, which was lovely, uh, but the placenta got stuck. So... Um, the TBA really didn't know what to do. She tried to grab it and pull it and things, but it still was stuck. Um, so she just wait, waited and watched for two days while she was bleeding uh, all that time and still the placenta still hadn't come out. So the, the TBA had the idea that if she used a stick, she oh. might be able to retrieve the placenta, which it didn't, but it just tore a big fistula uh, into her bladder. So before Zahara uh, got infected, of course, and now was leaking urine everywhere and she was bleeding even more. And she was brought to our hospital in a very clinical condition, um, very septic and very anemic. We resuscitated her. Of course, we removed the placenta under an operation and we resuscitated her and gave her blood and strong antibiotics. And slowly she regained strength. She was pretty emaciated by that time, and very close to death. Um, and then I came to operate on her fistula that was caused by that, that stick. So we operated. The operation went well, but you have to remember that these are illiterate little girls from the, the villages, and they've never been in a building before, let alone been into a hospital or had an operation before. So they're very, very fearful. 
And so Zahara one day pulled out the catheter from her bladder after the operation and ran back into the bush. Mm. And, of course, that undid the whole operation. So Val found her, her, her network of um, around 500 health workers found her um, and brought her back and she stayed at the hospital and uh, we spoke with her every day and was with her every day and I re-operated on another trip back to the AFAR and we sat with her for the two weeks every day after the operation encouraging her and being with her and uh, then removed the catheter and now she's cured. And she's now actually living with my aunt's compound in the desert um, and going to school because she wants to become a midwife and help other ladies in her her condition as well. So, um, yeah, we're thankful for Sahara. We're thankful for Angolo and and the many, many, many thousands of other ladies that have received treatment over the years. Our main effort is to try and prevent these things from happening uh, in the first place. And so that's the why, importantly, we need to, to build more maternity hospitals and ensure women can have safe obstetric care and not go through the, the very real risk of dying in labour or, or getting a fistula. Yes, of course, Andrew, of course I can see. And I can see why it would be so incredibly addictive because you can completely change someone's life and their trajectory. So I, I, I totally understand. So, Andrew, obviously, in order for you to be able to continue with your work, you need cash, you need, you, you, you need donations, you need people to get behind you and to support you. So how can people find you and what can they do? Um, you can spread the word. That'd be wonderful. Thank you for doing that today, Alex. Not at all. And, um, and visit our website, the Barbara May Foundation. So it's www.barbaramayfoundation.com. And all donations to us are tax deductible. I mean, as I said before, the coronavirus is really going to make things difficult for all charities. Um, some forecasters are expecting a 40% decrease in charitable giving, uh, which is going to really imp- impact the, the world in a broad way. But um, I'd like to say that ours is very cost effective. If you divide all our, the number of deliveries we do by the number of um, the running costs of our hospitals um, only comes to 200 Australian dollars per delivery, which means four clinic visits, including all your laboratory tests or ultrasounds in our hospitals, the delivery, which 14% chance of a caesarean, and the postnatal visit, including the post delivery visit to check you and the baby and also immunize your child, is 200 Australian dollars. So it's um, not a great deal of money uh, for a big impact to save a mother and child's life and, and perhaps prevent a fistula um, and immunise the child as, as well. So, And it's about $400 Australian to repair a fistula patient with that in our networks as well. So, um, yeah, not a great deal. Yeah, $1.50 to equip a TBA for a delivery. Um, yeah, but uh, donations have to be over $2 to... Um, be tax deductible, so maybe buy two delivery kits for a TBA, three dollars. Yeah, uh, to make less than a cup of coffee, less than a takeaway cup of coffee. Yeah, and then you've equipped two deliveries to be wow. done safely in the villages. Yeah. You know, and you could argue at the moment, Andrew, while we're all, uh, you know, eating at home and if we are fortunate enough to, you know, to still have our jobs because I know there are many that have got a lot of uncertainty or have lost jobs, but, you know, you think, okay, look, you know, Saturday night, we could have, we could have been out at the local tie, but we're not, we're at home. That could have been 70 bucks, 80 bucks. Why not redirect the funds, you know, um, because that can, as you say, look, $200 can totally change someone's trajectory. And, um, yeah, amazing, amazing. Andrew, you're doing such incredible work. 
Um, and can I also recommend to people that they find you on Facebook, the Barbara May Foundation on Facebook? I think you're doing such a great job keeping people up to date with what's going on. And there are some amazing photos and, and again, stories of ladies who you've helped. So it, it really gives you such a fabulous insight into the work you do. I think it's, I think the Facebook is incredible. So you're doing a really, really good job with that. So, um, so yes, so Andrew, thank you so much for making yourself available today. And um, gosh, 72 hours and counting. I bet you can't wait to be out of that. <laughs> That's 71 hours now. 71, of course. <laughs> Oh, look, no, that, look that, that'll be fantastic. And, look, I just hope you can get back as soon as possible and continue this uh, this vital work, you know. Yeah, what do you think? How long do you think it might be, you know, from what you hear on the ground in Africa and, um, you know. I don't know. It's very difficult. It's impossible to predict, isn't it? I mean, they're saying the lockdown here until July, uh, but it doesn't mean that the borders will be open in Africa. So a lot of African borders are closed. Um very few cases so far in Africa, but they're doing very few, very little testing. Mm. Um, so it's really difficult to know what's happening there. But there is some talk about, you know, things like malaria might be protective or whatever. So we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen over there. But um, you know, just just hope that um, actually it's interesting that our charity, the Barbara May Foundation, was named after my grandmother who was made an orphan in the Spanish flu 100 years ago. Um, and she, she lived as life as an orphan from the Spanish flu, and now we're in the next big pandemic. Uh, oh, Andrew. Yeah. Very so it's interesting. Full circle. Indeed we have. Indeed we have. Almost 100 years later, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Exactly 100 years later. Mm. Oh, 101 years later 101. since they died. Yes, exactly. Mm. Oh, dear. Oh, well, look, I hope you get back there as soon as you can because clearly uh, you're making such a big difference. So thank you again, Andrew, and let's keep talking and um, I will put all of the details um, into the show notes um, for the listeners on how they can find you and the website, the Facebook and all of that. So um, good luck, Andrew, and thank you for all you're doing. Really appreciate it. On behalf of Women Worldwide, thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much, Alex. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Grown Up Girls Report. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe. And while you're there, why not rate and review this podcast? I'd really love your feedback. Join me next time for another conversation for the Grown Up Girl. Thank you for listening. Speak soon.